Hi, I'm Amy Goodman, host of Democracy Now! We rely on your support to produce our independent journalism. Please do your part today by donating at democracynow.org. And thank you so much. This is Democracy Now! I see a lot of little short, dark people here. Little Korean. Not even like Kevin, little one. The president of the Los Angeles City Council, Nuri Martinez, has resigned from her leadership post after she was caught on tape mocking indigenous people and for describing the black son of a white member of the council as a little monkey. She and two other council members who took part in the conversation are facing calls to resign as the scandal grows. Ron Herrera, the head of the L.A. County Federation of Labor, has also resigned. We'll get the latest. Then a jury in Utah has acquitted two animal rights activists who face prison time for rescuing two sick piglets from a Smithfield Foods factory farm. You know, these two beautiful creatures who didn't deserve the crate and the suffering they were living in. And, and the jury bought that, too. So on to the next rescue, huh? And with the midterm elections four weeks away, we'll look at the power of grassroots movements and more with the legendary sociologist and political activist Frances Fox Piven. She turned 90 on Monday. I have been studying American social movements all of my adult life and participating in them as well. I think they are the key to understanding why at certain moments the United States has become a more humane, a more just society. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. In Ukraine, at least 19 people were killed and dozens more left injured Monday as Russia's military continued to rain bombs and missiles down on cities. The Kremlin said the long-range airstrikes were aimed at Ukraine's energy and military infrastructure and retribution for a weekend explosion that damaged a key bridge linking Russia to Crimea, the Ukrainian territory annexed by Moscow in 2014. Russian President Vladimir Putin has blamed Ukraine for the blast, calling it an act of terrorism. This morning, Ukraine's military claimed to have shot down several Russian cruise missiles. Russia's latest strike came as the U.N. General Assembly gathered for an emergency session Monday, ahead of a vote later this week on whether to accept Russia's annexation of four partially occupied territories of Ukraine. Poland's U.N. ambassador was among those urging member states to vote no. Not condemning the attempted annexation means weakening the UN Charter and weakening the whole UN system. One cannot expect UN institutions to function efficiently if one votes not accordingly to the very foundation they were established upon. Today, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky is holding virtual talks with leaders of the G7, including President Joe Biden and U.K. Prime Minister Liz Truss. It's expected Zelensky will ask for even more heavy weaponry, including advanced air defense systems. 
The leader of Belarus said Monday he will deploy a joint military task force with Russia near Belarus's border with Ukraine. President Alexander Lukashenko said he'd agreed to the deal during a meeting last weekend with Russian President Vladimir Putin in St. Petersburg. Lukashenko announced the troop movements as he warned NATO not to station nuclear weapons in Poland, suggesting he may be preparing to allow Russia to deploy nuclear arms to Belarus. Military and political leaders of NATO and several European countries are already openly considering options of possible aggression against our country, including launching of a nuclear strike. Tell the president of Ukraine and other lunatics, if any of them are still there, that the Crimean bridge will seem to them like a walk in the park if they ever touch a single meter of our territory with their dirty hands. In Venezuela, at least 36 people were killed by devastating floods over the weekend in the north-central state of Aragua. Fifty-six people remain missing. Venezuelan Vice President Delcy Rodriguez said the equivalent of one month of rain fell in eight hours. In Central America, Tropical Storm Julia brought intense rainfall to regions already saturated by weeks of heavy rains, triggering flooding and mudslides that killed at least 28 people in Guatemala and El Salvador. Meanwhile, a new joint report from the United Nations and the Red Cross warns that current rates of greenhouse gas emissions are set to drive more intense heat waves that will cause large-scale suffering and loss of life across huge swaths of Africa and Asia, where human life could become unsustainable by mid-century. The report warns heat waves will add to mass migration and further entrenched inequality, impacts that are already emerging today. The U.N.'s High Commissioner for Refugees has made an urgent appeal for funding, warning of severe cuts unless his agency raises another $700 million by the end of the year. Filippo Grandi said Monday Russia's invasion of Ukraine had pushed the number of people forcibly displaced from their homes worldwide to more than 100 million. He said that's led the U.N. Refugee Agency's annual budget to balloon to over 10 billion U.S. dollars. And while the Ukraine response has been and must continue to be well-funded, this has to be the target for all operations. Funding for new emergencies like Ukraine needs to be in addition to, not instead of the others. In Haiti, several people were shot Monday, at least one of them fatally, after police fired tear gas on thousands of protesters who took to the streets of the capital, Port-au-Prince. Protesters demanded the resignation of the U.S.-backed prime minister, Ariel Henry, and called on the government to reverse its decision to seek foreign military assistance. Unemployment, the high cost of living, insecurity, it is all for these reasons that I am in the street. I take to the streets to say no to the occupation. The United Nations is urging the activation of a rapid action force to Haiti to combat armed gangs that have blockaded the main terminal in Port-au-Prince, blocking imports of food, fuel and other necessities. This comes amidst warnings of a looming public health disaster of a new, as a new outbreak of cholera emerged this month. In 2010, U.N. peacekeepers inadvertently sparked a cholera outbreak that killed 10,000 people, and U.N. forces in Haiti have been accused of sexual violence.
in the occupied West Bank. A 12-year-old Palestinian child died Monday, two weeks after being shot and seriously wounded by Israeli forces during a raid in the Janine refugee camp in late September. Mahmoud Mohammed Samoudi was at least the 165th Palestinian killed by Israeli soldiers in the occupied West Bank and Gaza this year alone. At least 44 of those killed were children. Mexico has filed another lawsuit against five U.S.-based firearm dealers responsible for fueling the flow of illegal weapons and a surge of murders in Mexico. Foreign Relations Secretary Marcelo Ebrard said Monday the new lawsuit targets five gun shops based in Arizona that have made firearms widely accessible to straw buyers who then help smuggle them into Mexico. He said in recent years, about 60 percent of the weapons seized in Mexico were traded back to 10 U.S. counties, mostly along the U.S.-Mexico border. This comes after U.S. federal court in late September dismissed a separate $10 billion lawsuit Mexico filed last year against U.S.-based gun manufacturers. In Thailand, families of the victims of last week's massacre at a child care center gathered at Buddhist temples this morning to mark the end of three days of funeral ceremonies honoring their loved ones. A 34-year-old former police officer fatally shot and stabbed at least 36 people, including two dozen children, at the Young Children's Development Center last Thursday. It's the deadliest mass shooting in Thailand's modern history. Meanwhile, two U.S. journalists who work for CNN apologized for their coverage of the deadly attack after entering the building where the killings happened without permission. Thai press groups accuse CNN reporter Anna Corrin and cameraman Daniel Hodge of breaching journalistic ethics. In Ohio, U.S. Senate candidates squared off in a Monday evening debate that will help determine the balance of power in the next Congress. Republican venture capitalist J.D. Vance repeatedly defended the actions of Donald Trump, whose endorsement helped propel Vance to victory in Ohio's Republican primary last May. He faces Democratic Congress member Tim Ryan, who accused Vance of having his dignity taken away from him by the former president. In Georgia, new details have emerged about how Republican Senate candidate Herschel Walker paid for a girlfriend's abortion in 2009. The anti-choice Republican has denied the reports despite the existence of copious evidence. And over the weekend, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution reported text messages have emerged showing Walker's wife reached out to the ex-girlfriend. Walker has publicly called for a total ban on abortions without exceptions for rape, incest or the help of the mother. This comes as Democrats hope to harness voter anger over the Supreme Court's June ruling allowing states to ban abortion. In Wisconsin, Democrat Mandela Barnes is hoping to unseat Republican incumbent Ron Johnson to become the state's first ever African-American U.S. senator. If I were in the U.S. Senate, I would absolutely vote to codify Roe versus Wade to protect the right to an abortion and the right to choose into law once and for all to protect women's rights. The president of the Los Angeles City Council, Mary Martinez, has stepped down from her leadership role after she was recorded saying racist remarks against black and indigenous people. Martinez made the comments last year on a phone call discussing redistricting with council members Kevin DeLeon and Gil Cedillo, as well as L.A. Labor Federation President Ron Herrera, who has also just resigned his post. It's unclear who recorded the call or who leaked it to the media, but it comes just weeks before voters head to the polls in Los Angeles to pick a new mayor. We'll have more on this story after headlines. 
In labor news, unionized railroad maintenance and construction workers have rejected a tentative deal with railroad carriers, renewing the possibility of a nationwide strike. The tentative agreement between unions and railroad carriers was brokered last month with the help of the Biden administration's presidential emergency board. It would add one additional payday off and allow workers to take unpaid days to get medical care without being penalized by their employers. Workers have denounced a lack of any paid sick time. The deal also included a pay raise of about 20 percent by 2024. The rail carriers have seen their profits soar in recent years, while workers' wages remain stagnant. And renowned defense lawyer Billy Southern has died by suicide. He was 45 years old. Southern became known for defending low-income people across what's known as the Death Belt, a region stretching from Alabama to East Texas where death penalty cases are prevalent. Southern took up some of the toughest cases, including the wrongful conviction of Albert Woodfox, a former Black Panther who spent nearly 44 years in solitary confinement for a crime he always said he did not commit. Democracy Now! spoke to Billy Southern in 2016, when Albert Woodfox was released from prison. If you look back through the course of Albert's case, we see um, the suppression of evidence by the prosecution. We see uh, ineffective assistance of counsel uh, for, for people who can't afford their own lawyers. We see an appellate process that's incredibly resistant um, to providing new trials, even when it's the manifest and right thing to do. Um, so while, of course, it's amazing that after 43 years, um, Albert Woodfox is now out of prison, it's also horrifying that it took 43 years for this injustice to be corrected. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman in New York, joined by Democracy Now! co-host Juan Gonzalez in New Brunswick, New Jersey. Hi, Juan. Hi, Amy, and welcome to all of our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world. Well, we begin today's show looking at the growing political scandal in Los Angeles. On Monday, the president of the Los Angeles City Council, Nuri Martinez, resigned from her leadership post after she was caught on tape using racist language against indigenous people in the city and for describing the black son of a city council member as a little monkey. Martinez made the comments last year during a conversation discussing redistricting with Los Angeles City Council members Kevin DeLeon and Gil Cedillo, as well as Ron Herrera, the head of the Los Angeles County Federation of Labor, who also resigned last night. It's unclear who recorded the call or who leaked it to the media, but it comes just weeks before voters head to the polls in Los Angeles to pick a new mayor. The scandal has put a spotlight on tension between Latinx and black political leaders in Los Angeles. In one part of the phone call, Neri Martinez can be heard talking about the adopted son of fellow Democratic council member Mike Bonin. Bonin's white. His son is black. She accused Bonin handling his son as if he were a, quote, accessory like a purse, and she describes the boy as changuito, which translates as little monkey. Listen carefully. It's like the oddest thing. It's like black and brown on this float. And then there's this, this white guy with this little black kid who's misbehaved. Este niño has no, he's, they're not, even, yeah, no, they're not doing, 
The kid is bouncing off the effing walls on the floor, practically tipping it over. There's nothing you can do to control him. And I'm just like, oh my God. They're raising him like a little white kid, which I was like, this kid is a beat down. Like, let me, let me take him around the corner and then I'll bring him back. Yeah. It's a pinch. <laughs> so anyway, it's getting back to redistricting. In another part of the call, Nuri Martinez is heard talking about Los Angeles District Attorney George Gascon, saying, quote, F that guy, he's with the blacks. Martinez is also heard, along with Gil Cedillo, commenting about indigenous people from Central America that live in Koreatown. She describes them as short, dark people, then uses a Spanish term, tan feos, to say they're ugly. Yeah, that's called Cape Town. Yes, I see a lot of little short, dark people. Yeah, puro, puro Oaxacan, puro Oaxacan Koreans. <laughs> Not even like Kevin, little ones. I was like, no, I don't know where these people are from. I was like, I don't know what village they came out of got here, but. And so they're wearing shoes. So, so one, one, I get what we have to do, right? Just massage to create districts that benefit you all, yep. right? And the future. Yep. But we got to figure out Mark C, too, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, that benefits you three. The last voice was Ron Herrera, who resigned yesterday as head of the L.A. County Federation of Labor. The Los Angeles Times editorial board is now calling for all three city council members heard on the call to resign. Nuri Martinez, Kevin DeLeon, and Gil Cedillo. We're joined now by two guests. Melina Abdullah is co-founder of Black Lives Matter Los Angeles, organizes globally with BLM Grassroots. She's a professor of Pan-African Studies at California State University, Los Angeles. And Odilia Romero is the co-founder and executive director of Indigenous Communities and Leadership, or Cielo, an indigenous women-led group in Los Angeles that supports indigenous migrant communities. We welcome you both back to Democracy Now! Odilia, let's begin with you. You held a news conference yesterday calling on the resignation of these Latinx leaders in Los Angeles. Can you respond to what's unfolding, this leaked tape of a conversation they had about a year ago? Well, when I first heard this tape, I... I I was very upset. I, I was very upset because these are our elected officials that were making these comments. I was not surprised, though, because part of our struggle as Cielo is to, um, you know, call out the broader Latina movement or call them in and say, like, hey, um, we, we have to stop this uh, racism against indigenous people. As a human rights organization, we get these calls every day of somebody who said, get me a Oaxacan speaker. <clears throat> We're like, what is that? You know, Cielo fights against the racism and discrimination uh, against indigenous people on a daily basis. But um, it was not shocking. I'm shocked that people are shocked that this actually happens. But indigenous people go through this every single day in different uh, er, parts of, uh, of their daily lives, in schools, in hospitals, on the streets. So her inciting hate against indigenous people has a direct impact on our lives at a school, at a hospital. 
And we still want her to resign. I mean, she resigned the presidency. But uh, a person like Nudi, like Kevin, and said that you cannot continue representing uh, in, uh, representing us as Angelinos because you're inciting hate against um, our African-American relatives, indigenous people. Um, it, it's unacceptable. And Odilia, could you talk about the Oaxacan community in Koreatown and how it was brought into uh, this discussion of voting redistricting? Well, um, Koreatown, um, it has a lot of Zapotec community. Uh, it is, I would say, one of the most um, beautiful places because there's so much diversity there. But my entire family lives in Koreatown. Indigenous people live in Koreatown. Um, and that area, uh, you know, it's uh, part of Cedillo's area. And, and this, I mean, I mean, for me, it is, um, the comments were, were disgusting, but that, that area of Koreatown, there's a lot of population of indigenous Oaxacan, but also, you know, uh, they fail to recognize that we contribute to, to Koreatown. And we're not only in Koreatown, we're all over. But because that redistricting, redistricting is happening on that conversation, you know, it is unfortunate of what they think of us and also how they're going to, what what services they would provide or, or, or what is it. You know, how, how is it that they're going to serve a group of people that they talk so uh, awful about, right? Um, so I think yeah, um, uh, you have to come yeah, to Korea. I, I want, yeah, yeah, I wanted to ask you also, you mentioned uh, Councilman Gil Cedillo. I, I've known Gil Cedillo for more than 30 years, uh, and I actually tried to reach him. I got I got him over the phone last night and, uh, and asked him about this horrendous uh, these, this horrendous conversation. He was uh, remorseful, but uh, at the same time, he admitted that he should have spoken out uh, and uh, and tried to stop the council president from some of her remarks. Can you talk about the fact here, Gil Cedillo has been a champion of, uh, of the undocumented now for decades in Los Angeles. Uh, the, the contrast between his actions and his words and his uh, the bias that he showed, especially toward the Oaxacan community in, in this tape. Well, I have to tell you, I've known Cedillo uh, as well for many years. And uh, actually, last, last year after that conversation, um, I saw him at a restaurant and the first thing he told me, you look so festive today. So I'm not surprised. I don't, I, he might be remorseful, but I don't think it, it, it comes from his heart. Um, and um, said, so, now I, I, I mean, he has been a champion of like the of driver's license for undocumented people, but his actions shown other, uh, I mean, these words, but it's, it's not uncommon for the broader Latino movement to make this comment, right? We go back to, there are things that you do, for example, support the driver's license, but you're thinking as a broader Latino, you're not thinking, oh, this is gonna benefit indigenous people because that's where we have an issue. Like we are lumped into being Latinos, every single one of us. No one's taking into account that within the 
Latin American continent, there is people that speak other languages. We are different. Uh, our traditions are different. Our culture is different. Our language is different. We're not part of the Latino co uh, community. So there, he just continued what we have been living for hundreds of years as indigenous people, this racism and this discrimination. It is very common. Uh, for people to call us these these names, right? I'm not going to re repeat them because they're very harmful. What am I going to tell my 12-year-old when he's hearing all these news about indigenous Oaxacan? So. Uh, I wanted to bring Melina Abdullah into the conversation. Um, she is the co-founder of Black Lives Matter Los Angeles. Um, Professor Abdullah, your response to what has taken place, and if you could comment overall about tensions between the black and Latino community in Los Angeles. Sure. So um, I appreciate Sister Odilia also for pulling together black and indigenous people yesterday. So the press conference that was held included Cielo, but Black Lives Matter was also invited. I think that that should be the narrative of what Los Angeles really is, that in community, black folks, indigenous folks, brown folks do work together to challenge racism, to challenge oppression. And that's really the story of Los Angeles. What we saw happen, what we heard happen um, is an indication of some elected leaders that they intend to simply replace white supremacist oppressors with brown faces. So brown faces that enact the same kind of oppressive policies um, and use the same kind of oppressive language as white folks who used to hold power, who once held power um, and are on their way out. Um, and so I think that's what we're seeing happening. What's harmful to me is, yes, it was really hurtful and problematic to listen to this language. And I definitely reached out to Mike Bonin um, as a black mother. You know, I felt very hurt for his son. His son is at the time was two years old. And to talk about any black child in the way that they were um, spoken about is painful. Um, but beyond the pain and beyond the hurt is also this um, effort to really sideline black power, to oppress black power. We have to remember that what that meeting was about was redistricting in the city of Los Angeles. So these four so-called leaders got together and they were plotting, planning, conspiring to undermine black power in the city of Los Angeles. And so my assessment of it is that Black folks and brown folks and indigenous folks and everybody who wants a just and equitable and fair and um, transparent and democratic system in Los Angeles has to come together and demand that all four of them resign. So not just Ron Herrera, who stepped down, not just Nuri Martinez stepping down from her leadership position, but the three city council members must step down from their city council seats. And then we must undergo a fundamental culture shift within both the political sphere, but also within organized labor, where I'm also a delegate to the L.A. County Federation of Labor, where Ron Herrera was president. Um, finally, last night, more than 60 black leaders came together on an emergency call. We stayed up 
until the wee hours of the morning and came up with a list of demands that demands that, yes, all four of them be removed from their posts, that they step down from their posts. But also we want more than that. We want the presidency to go to Mike Bonin for the city council presidency to go to Mike Bonin um, for the remainder of the term. We want to make sure that no elected leader um, is permitted to carry out any leadership position who says anything that's anti-Black or racist or homophobic, which we haven't yet talked about. Um, And we want to make sure that this culture shift within the L.A. County Federation of Labor means that there's an opening up of seats and leadership positions to black folks who are in labor. And that also includes the removal of police associations from the Federation of Labor. So there's lots that we want beyond the resignation of these folks. This is more than just hurt feelings. This is about how this has negatively impacted black power in the city. And we also want an investigation into that. How did this impact the lines that were drawn as they were um, plotting and planning about redistricting. And Professor Abdullah, you mentioned uh, that we haven't talked about the homophobic character. These conversations reveal a bias that was anti-black, anti-indigenous, anti-gay, and also uh, 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 you have mentioned that you believe it's also classist. Could you talk about that? Yes. So they also, if you listen to the tape, are talking about renters in the city. Renters make up the majority of Los Angeles. We know that black folks are being pushed out of the city of Los Angeles. We've seen um, really kind of a a, a out out uh, uh, running out of the city. Um, Black folks and poor folks are being run out of the city because of the gentrification that's being that's taking place. They were speaking negatively about renters. They were speaking negatively about our attempt to organize. In fact, our um, hugely successful attempts to organize. So Kevin DeLeon is on that tape talking about the Wizard of Oz and how we make it seem like there's 250 of us, but there's really only 25 black people yelling. Well, let me say there were more than 25 black people yelling last night outside of Kevin DeLeon's house. There were more than 25 black people yelling um, night before last outside of Nuri Martinez's house. And there will be more than 25 black people yelling this morning as hundreds of us um, prepare to go to Los Angeles City Council meeting to demand that they all step down from their city council seats. Many indigenous people are in the Labor Federation that Ron Herrera has now just resigned from. Uh, Odilia, we just have 30 seconds, but the resources you've been demanding for the crisis of how people deal with migration in this country, you as a leader of the indigenous community in Los Angeles that has been slandered in these calls, in this, in, in this conversation. Well, uh, you know, um, with the situation with Ron Herrera, um, it is unfortunate that he did not acknowledge the contribution of indigenous workers and went on to allow these awful remarks against indigenous people. And this racism against black, against indigenous people, against uh, the LGBTQ needs to stop. And we need and we continue to demand that Nuri, Kevin DeLeon 
and Cedillo resigned. And yes, we are headed to City Hall today, along with our black relatives. Odilia Romero, we want to thank you for being with us, co-founder and executive director of Cielo, Indigenous Communities in Leadership, an Indigenous women-led group in Los Angeles, and Melina Abdullah, co-founder of Black Lives Matter Los Angeles, organizes globally with BLM Grassroots, professor of Pan-African Studies at California State University in Los Angeles, speaking to us today from San Juan, Puerto Rico. Coming up, a jury in Utah has acquitted two animal rights activists who faced years in prison for rescuing two sick piglets from a Smithfield Foods factory farm in Utah. Stay with us. When the Sun Goes Down by Dog Bowl and Kramer. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. In Utah, a jury acquitted two animal rights activists this weekend who faced years in prison for rescuing two sick piglets from Smithfield Circle Four Farms in Utah, one of the world's largest pig farms. It's a major victory for the animal rights group Direct Action Everywhere, which has been fighting to establish a right to rescue animals in distress. During the rescue operation, activists with the group found piglets feeding on their own mother's blood, pregnant pigs held in gestational crates too small for them to turn around in, and sick and feverish piglets left to die of starvation or be trampled. This is Wayne Chung, direct action everywhere, in a video filmed during a rescue at Smithfield Circle Four Farms. So we've seen piles of dead piglets, piglets who've starved to death, who've been crushed to death. And we have a little one here whose face is covered with blood. She's half the size of the other piglets. She's going to die unless we get her out. Um, her mother's nipples have been cut and are so overused that they're bleeding, and you can't even get milk out of them. Her children are literally drinking blood to survive. And this little piglet in the corner here, her face is covered in blood, and she's down on the ground. She's not going to make it, so we're going to take her out. Um, we're going to give her the medical care she deserves, and then we're going to take her to sanctuary, and hopefully she survives. Wayne's Young went on to describe what he found outside of a dumpster at the Smithfield Pig Farm in Utah. So we're outside of a dumpster at Circle Four, and they literally just took a mother pig who was sick and not able to stand any longer, threw her in here head first with a pile of probably 100 dead babies. 
And when we just got here, we could still hear the blood dripping from her body. And, you know, she probably died from blunt force trauma to the head. She's covered with all sorts of disgusting feces, blood, rotten corpses. And, again, this is what happens at every single pig farm in the world. Because they treat these animals as if they're just things. But they're not things. They're living creatures. And they deserve better than this. That was Wayne Shung of Direct Action Everywhere, DXC, at a pig farm in 2017. He and a fellow animal rights activist, Paul Picklesheimer, were just acquitted by a jury Saturday night. Wayne Shung joins us now, co-founder of DXC, Direct Action Everywhere. Hi, Wayne. Can you talk about the significance of the jury acquitting you both? You faced, what, five and a half years in prison? Amy, yeah, we initially faced 11 years in prison. One of the counts was dismissed, but it, it's an incredible victory. And I, I'm still kind of reeling from it because not only is this an incredibly conservative county that's highly dependent on agriculture, but the rulings that were made in this court denied us the right to present most of the evidence your viewers just heard. So the, the people on this jury were able to hear a very limited portion of the story. They knew we were there because we were concerned about animal welfare. They knew we felt that these animals needed medical care, and that was enough for them to exonerate us from any criminal responsibility for burglary and theft. And that's a resounding victory, not just for transparency and accountability in factory farms, but for the idea that animals are living beings and not just things to be thrown away into a garbage can. Uh, Wayne, could you talk about uh, Circle 4 Farm? It's one of the largest hog-producing facilities in the country, uh, processes more than one million pigs a year. Uh, Smithfield Foods had promised to phase out the use of gestation crates. What, what, what are gesta gestation crates? And did Smithfield Foods uh, make good on their promise? Well, gestation crates, I, I like to call them basically metal tombs that a mother pig is forced to live in for five, six years of her life. But mother pigs are very large animals. They're about 600, 700 pounds, so twice the size of an NFL lineman. And a gestation crate is a two-foot two foot by seven-foot metal box or metal tomb. It almost looks like a claw that grips the animal and holds them in place. So about 14 square feet of space that a mother pig will live in for virtually entire adult life. And this is to confine a large number of animals in a very small amount of space. You're right that Smithfield promised back in 2007 they'd be phasing these crates out because when consumers found out about these devices, which have only been around for the few past few decades, only since agriculture became industrialized, consumers have revolted against them. They don't want these pigs confined in crates. Um, and we did our investigation on Circle 4 because it is the single largest facility owned by Smithfield in the United States. It's systemically important. A huge amount of the pork production in the western United States comes from Circle 4. And when we walked into the facility in March of 2017, two months after they supposedly had phased out the use of these crates, we found thousands and thousands of mother pigs in these crates and not a single mother pig outside of them. Um, Jim Monroe, Smithfield's vice president of corporate affairs, said in a statement, this verdict's very disappointing, as it may encourage anyone opposed to raising animals for food to vandalize farms. Following this 2017 incident, we immediately launched an investigation, completed a third-party audit after learning of alleged mistreatment of animals on a company-owned hog farm in Milford, Utah. The audit results showed no findings of animal mistreatment. Um, can you respond to that, Wayne? And also, tell us about these baby 
baby piglets. What and how you went into the factory? They were less than a week old each. You named them Lily and Lizzie, and where you brought them? Yeah, in, in regard to the first part of this statement, that this will encourage people to engage in vandalism, it won't. It'll encourage people to rescue dying and distressed animals. This is a completely nonviolent action. We walked in through an open door. We did not damage any property. We were, had no intent to harm anyone, not even the company itself. Our only intent was to give consumers the right to know what was happening inside these facilities and to give animals that are suffering the right to be rescued from torture. With respect to the second part of the statement that they had an independent audit done, I mean, first, it's worth pointing out that these independent audits are paid for by Smithfield. These are longtime contractors of Smithfield who basically do their bidding. But secondarily, in discovery in this case, we actually obtained a copy of this audit. Even their own in-house audit paid for by Smithfield itself found baby pigs piled up in gas chambers three deep. And their own auditor said, this is unacceptable. You cannot pile up living, dying, and sick animals three deep, squirming and trampling on top of each other inside of a gas chamber. Yeah, this is what they're considering humane. Um, with respect to these two baby piglets, Lily and Lizzie were both in terrible condition. And I think one of the reasons the jury acquitted us is because while we were not able to present evidence of the general conditions at, at Smithfield and the promise they made about gestation crates, we were able to present evidence about these particular piglets because they were, after all, su subject of the so-called theft. And I think, honestly, when the jurors first saw Lizzie with her face covered in blood, scarring all across her face because she was unable to accept access food from her mother, um, I could see in their faces they're horrified and they wanted this to stop. And, and we're seeing that across the nation when people actually see, especially an individual animal, and, and feel the suffering of that individual animal and, and empathize with their story, they realize, I don't necessarily want to be a part of the system. I want to do something else. And Wayne, could you talk about not only how some of these factory farms tr uh, mistreat uh, the uh, and basically torture these animals, but also how they deal with their workers, most of whom are uh, immigrants? Yeah. So Smithfield has a long history of mistreatment of its own employees. Um, Bob Herbert, the New York Times, did a number of really good pieces in the early to mid 2000s about union busting efforts at Smithfield. And some of their largest plants, they were not only preventing workers from unionizing in illegal ways, they're actually physically assaulting their own employees. And, and this has been verified by the National Labor Relations Board. A federal court has reviewed some of the evidence and concluded there was intentional violence against their own workers merely for trying to get a living wage to improve their working conditions. And slaughterhouses and factory farms are some of the most dangerous places to work in the world because the same blades and gas chambers and devices that are used to harm animals can be used inadvertently to harm a human being. But probably the most infamous incident in Smithfield's history, which actually unfolded at the exact site where we did our investigation in Open Rusty, was an instance of human trafficking, where they were shipping in people in from Asia, not paying them, threatening their families back at home. Um, and Smithfield escaped almost all accountability for this incident. It, it was literally an incident of human slavery. It's been widely reported in the media from the early to mid-2000s. Um, and Smithfield escaped responsibility because, as of many corporations, they blamed a contractor. They blamed a subsidiary. They blamed someone else and said, oh, this isn't our fault. When this is a massive facility of hundreds of employees, supposedly well-managed and supervised, they claim they care for the animals and their own workers with a lot of attention, yet they didn't realize that there are people being trafficked in their own facility. 
Well, we want to thank you, Wayne Chung, for joining us. Wayne Chung is the head of Direct Action Everywhere, known as DXE, uh, speaking to us from Utah, where he was involved with the Direct Action, a rescue of piglets five years ago. He and his colleague were just acquitted on Saturday night. They faced, oh, first 11 years, then five and a half years each in prison. Coming up— we talk to Frances Fox Piven, the legendary sociologist and political activist. She just turned 90 yesterday. Stay with us. You think I'd leave your side, baby? You know me better than that. side by Chardet. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. With the midterm elections four weeks away, we spend the rest of the hour with the sociologist, the activist, the legendary Frances Fox Piven. She turned 90 on Monday. Frances Fox Piven's a longtime social movement scholar, distinguished professor emerita of political science and sociology at the City University of New York Graduate Center. Her groundbreaking books include Regulating the Poor and Poor People's Movements, Why They Succeed, How They Fail, with her late husband and collaborator Richard Cloward. Her other books include Challenging Authority, How Ordinary People Change America, and Why Americans Still Don't Vote and Why Politicians Want It That Way. We welcome you back to Democracy Now! Um, happy birthday, Francis Fox Piven. It's great to have you with us. Oh, thank you so much. It's lovely to talk to you again. Uh, I'm glad to be on the program. So can you talk about where we are today uh, in I this country so. and movements around the world from your perspective and your uh, almost a century of uh, wisdom around people's movements? OK, maybe more like 70 years, but. Well. We're at a kind of crisis juncture in American development and in the world's development. But we've been there before. Democracy, we think of the United States as a democratic country. It's always been a very uh, limited democracy. And what, what kind of, what democratic rights we have, have always been fought for. Uh, we didn't get them automatically and we didn't get them with the agreement of the property classes in the United States. So American history is punctuated by bitter fights over the contest between a kind of authoritarianism and democracy. 
And we're at another juncture of a bitter contest uh, about democratic rights. And it's complicated because it isn't necessarily all the people, the ordinary people, who fight for democracy, people, uh, all, all, all sorts of cults uh, have a grip on American development. And the very complexity of our political system makes it more likely that authoritarian, the authoritarian classes who control the American economy will dominate at least parts of the population, parts of uh, the constituency we wish would be democratic. However, always from the very beginning of the American experiment, uh, always people have discovered sources of power which make it possible to retain some democratic rights and to fight for new democratic rights. That's, I think, the key point I would like to make. People do have power. And they have power because we live in a complex, integrated society where the activities of ordinary people really do matter. And because they really do matter, because they go to work, because they uh, they drive to work, they use the transportation system, because everyone depends on everyone else, people can exercise power. And much of that power is, is achieved, realized, through a kind of defiance, through a kind of refusal. That's what a strike is. People withdraw their labor, but they can also withdraw other forms of obedience. And that's why there is always the prospect that we will survive this assault on democracy, that we will make progress, that we will control environmental pollutants, that we will limit the use of military We do. We achieve these things, even though it's always bitterly contested. And, and fr- uh, Francis, you mentioned the ability of people to uh, protest. First of all, happy birthday to you. Uh, and I wanted you, to re- remind you that uh, I remember that I think it was a classic picture back in uh, 55 years ago in 1968 of you climbing up to a second floor of uh, uh, the second floor of a building at Columbia University when we were on strike coming in to join the protesters. That was 55 years ago. Uh, and, and it I'm was wondering, a math uh, building. <laughs> yes. Uh, and I wanted to a- ask you about the uh, the role of these protest movements in affecting social change, whether it's the, the student strikes, labor strikes, Occupy Wall Street, in terms of affecting uh, last, uh, major changes in uh, American policy? Well, I think that movements, protest movements, defiant movements, movements that break the rules, are the main lever, the main weapon that ordinary people have in a, a, 
realizing their aspirations and uh, protecting their democratic rights. This doesn't mean that everybody is sort of uh, on uh, on track that everybody that that the movement includes the entire population, but. The abolitionists, for example, or the strike movement of the late 19th, early 20th century, or the civil rights movement. These movements defied the usual norms, protocols of cooperative living in a dense society. And because they did, they shut things down. And because they shut things down, they had to be attended to. Their demands had to be responded to. Their vision of a better society had to acquire a kind of recognition. Uh, so I don't think that's changed. We still live in a densely interdependent society. It is still the case that virtually everybody in the society is locked into cooperative relationships which make their participation and their acquiescence uh, necessary so that this kind of mass refusal is still the main lever through which ordinary people change American politics. But Francis, these kinds of uh, protest, resistance and refusal are not a province solely of those who are progressive and the left. We're seeing now in the United States rising populist fascism. Uh, and I'm wondering your thoughts about the dangers of, of, of the growth of authoritarianism and fascism in the United States. I think it's extremely dangerous. I think, in fact, that I understand fascism to consist of the kind of a kind of coalition between propertied elites and a defiant, discontented, MAGA-like mob. Uh, that that was German fascism, Italian fascism. Bolsonaro is another example. Uh, Duarte, but it. Uh, it's, so it's complicated. And what we have to worry about is the difficulty of understanding what's happening in a complicated political system. And because it's so hard to understand, people are susceptible to propaganda in a way that is very, very dangerous uh, so that we can have, for example, Trump tell a rally of MAGA adherents that aren't you glad about all the automobile plants I brought back to Michigan? And no automobile plants were brought back to Michigan. But who knows? People, it's hard for people to understand their own environment, their own society. And that's why that, that gives a very important role to activists, to educators, uh, to uh, DSA. So it, it's a dangerous time, but there is no alternative except to try to work with the people and take advantage of the critical role that people play 
in making our society function in so that the factories hum the highways move the subways move all that depends on cooperation and our ability to be a truly democratic society depends on the ability of people to withdraw that cooperation. Francis, um, I'm wondering your thoughts on Ben Bernanke winning the Nobel Prize for Economics. Um, he was the Fed chair from 2006 to 2014, appointed by both uh, Bush and Obama. And then he made his way through the revolving door, senior advisor to Citadel, one of the country's largest hedge funds. Uh, but that kind of approach to economics and contrast that, for example, with a woman you have worked with for so many decades who we just lost, Barbara Ehrenreich. Barbara was a wonderful, brilliant person. I'd known Barbara for what, about 50 years, and I worked with her. I wrote with her. I loved her. She had—she was not only very smart, uh, she was uh, the essence of a decent person and, uh, and a woman of the left. So her loss is tragic, but inevitable because we all die. And uh, Barbara leaves in her, as Barbara's death leaves us with her accomplishments, not only her books, but her economic hardship project in which she actually paid for young people, to, young and poor people. Uh, to become the authors of their own life, to be, begin to affect journalism uh, and produce the journalism that will give us knowledge of what it means to be poor in the United States. And Ben Bernanke? I have no opinion about him. <laughs> uh, he, I mean, he's a member of the economic elite. He is as the economics profession in general is. He is the articulator and the justifier of oligarchy, of an economic oligarchy, which is what the United States is. Uh, Francis, we only have about a minute left. I wanted to ask you about voting. Uh, several of the books that you and Richard Cloward wrote were credited with uh, pushing the motor voter rules, making it easier for people to register to vote. Your your response to how you're seeing the attempts to restrict uh, voting as much as possible across the United States uh, by uh, conservative Republicans? Well, it's very obvious, isn't it, that Republicans don't think they can win elections uh, if they follow the basic rules of a democracy, if they count the votes. If they allow people to vote and then they count the vote, if they can't, so observing that they're not likely to win if they do that, they've decided that they're going to tear down the elemental democratic arrangements that we have in the United States. It is so horrifying and so important that we rally to defend basic democratic rights. It's not that these always work. It's not that they're perfect. 
It's not that they aren't corrupted. They are all those things. Nevertheless, they help to humanize American society. It is a good thing that people vote. And more and more people actually do vote. And that's good. But we have to protect it because they, there is actually a concerted effort to dismantle democracy. Republicans and the property. We have 10 seconds. Have perceived that they're no longer popular. And because they're no longer popular, they're going to smash the arrangements through which people express themselves in the American political system and have some influence. Francis Fox Piven, we thank you so much for being with us. Longtime social movement scholar, distinguished professor emeritus of political science sociology at CUNY Grad Center. Again, a very happy 90th birthday. That does it for our show. We have two full-time job openings. Check democracynow.org. <laughs>